Welcome back to The Medical Republic, a podcast for curious GPs. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. And we've got heaps in store this season. I don't even know how we're going to fit it all in, actually. But somehow we're going to manage. So we're going to bring you the hottest takes on all GP politics with the election coming up. And we've also got some deep dives into some of the great changes occurring in general practice. And if you can't be at the front lines, don't worry. The Medical Republic will be coming to you live from GPCE in Sydney, the AMA conference in Brisbane, and even ULAR in Spain. Yeah, Felicity is jet-setting off uh, to bring you the best of the European medical conferences very soon. And we're very excited about this. For a few minutes of each episode, we're setting aside some time and we're handing the mic over to GPs and practice nurses to give their take on a hot topic of their choice. It's a bit like a town square, so if there's something that's on your mind, uh, or if you've got a controversial opinion, we really need to hear from you this season. Yeah, and you can just get in contact, we'll leave our emails at the end of the show. But coming up in this episode, why do GPs dislike everything to do with workers' compensation? It's not just you, it's all a bit of a mess. But first... We've got Jeremy Nibbs, he's the boss of TMR, and he's here in the studio with us, and he's the publisher, but he also doubles as a tech reporter. Welcome, Jeremy. Hi, Frankie. Uh, So, we hear that doctors are being recruited to the data side. What does that mean? Digital health is perhaps one of the most complex and confusing things that will change healthcare in Australia, and there are several key stakeholders, patients obviously a major stakeholder, but possibly one of the most important stakeholders are doctors. But doctors just generally don't understand enough about digital health. And um, this thing of doctors being recruited to the data side is essentially people training doctors to understand a lot of the complexity around digital health and rolling out digital health so that they from within the system can make informed decisions about digital health. Doctors have to be more literate digitally, and that doesn't mean every doctor has to understand how these things work, but it's a pretty interesting career and, you know, potentially one of the best paid future careers is a a position called Chief Clinical Information Officer, and a Chief Clinical Information Officer in a hospital region or a PHN region, that person is a medically trained person with experience as a doctor who also has training in health informatics and digital and, and can combine the two. And you've met some of those GPs that are at the coalface and possibly filling those future roles? Yeah, I have. And um, the, the thing is, nearly all of them are creative. And what we're finding and what um, some of these people are finding is that a lot of doctors are interested in extending themselves outwards. And digital is a very interesting area to go. Um, You know, some doctors are are leading startups. Other doctors are are, are taking part in in big digital rollout programs. And it's very important for, for Australian health that doctors get more involved and doctors are able to understand this and, and have a voice. And are the doctors helping to build the digital health platforms? Yeah, they, they definitely are. The, the thing is, there aren't a lot of doctors who are qualified in this way. And uh, one, one reason we wrote this story is, is that one of these doctors, Dr. Amanda Hazra, who, who was a GP, and she did a health informatics master's, and um, then she got a job with Telstra running a new, uh, a new telehealth startup called ReadyCare. And, you know, that was a very hard thing to do, but she loved it. And when she moved on from that, she wanted to do more. And then she just got the idea that other doctors should do it because not many doctors are doing it. So she had the idea to have a conference called Creative Careers in Medicine. And so she's extended it way beyond just, you know, having a digital 
a side to, to, to having all sorts of other sides. So if GFPs want to know more about that, what's the newsletter? How do you sign up to it? Oh, yes, you can go to wildhealth.net.au and you just go to the go to um, Wild Health Irregular Insights and just put in your email address and you can get our, you can get our um, fortnightly digital health insights newsletter. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Medical Republic podcast. Thank you. It was great to come. This week's hot topic is from Dr. Brad McKay, a GP from Sydney's eastern suburbs who you might have seen on TV. Well, today's hot topic is something that's very close to many people's hearts, which is pill testing. So we've recently had the second ever pill testing uh, at, a, at a festival at Groove in the Moo in Canberra. So two years running. And this really isn't all that much in, a, in Australia. There are festivals that go on every year and there are plenty of people that are carted off to hospital or who die at festivals around the country. And from a medical perspective, this it's, I don't know, I'm flabbergasted. It's really crazy that we don't have this available at the moment. It seems that our politicians are using it as a, a bit of a football. There's no evidence around the world that it actually increases drug use. We're not seeing that at all. So on the, the risks versus benefits, there's very few risks involved. We're not going to be advocating for drug use. We're telling them that even if we're using all of the fancy gadgets that we have and, and can have a detailed look at that pill or powder, we still can't guarantee that it's going to work well for their body, but at least we can give them that education. We're not going to encourage their use. The benefits are that we can decrease the amount of people that are dying in the prime of their life. I think that's pretty important. Uh, we can stop people from having overdoses at festivals. We can decrease the amount of people that are being carted off in ambulances to emergency departments around the festivals. Uh, there's so many um, health dollars that we can save by actually having pill testing on site at a festival or at different sites around, around city areas. So, yeah, it's, it's an issue that I just see as, as being so crazy at the moment. We're just not making the progress uh, that we should be. And other countries have had it available for a couple of decades, and we're really, really dragging our feet with this. And uh, yeah, I, I think it would be a, a good thing for, for festival goers or other people who might just be wanting to have MDMA in their own bedroom at home uh, to be able to not die. get into talking about work cover and it sounds like a very painful experience especially if you're going to have work cover for your mental health so Felicity wrote a fantastic feature on this and it was many pages long but how was that process and what did you learn Felicity? Yeah so it's interesting isn't it that there's this thing called workers compensation where if you fall over at work or something drops on you you um, can take some time off work and get your wages paid for and some access to medical appointments um, and some support so it'll get you back into the workforce. But workers' compensation doesn't work so well when it comes to psychological injuries for a number of reasons. I spoke to a lot of people who work with uh, patients who've, who are going through the workers' compensation process, who've gone through a psychological injury in the workplace, and um, 
they said that it's such an awful process that it, it in fact makes the condition worse. It's, it's like a Kafkaesque kind of whirlpool of, of paperwork and it makes people unwell. So going through the process <laughs> makes you sick, which is bad. Yeah, which is ridiculous because, but it also makes a lot of sense because when you think about it, if you're on a building site and a hammer drops on your foot, it's very obvious you can put in a claim, you go see your GP, your GP can sign off. Yes, obviously there's an imprint of a hammer on your leg and that would have happened at work. So how can GPs go about proving that a psychological trauma was sustained at work? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because as part of the workers' compensation process, um, the first stage is that a patient will go to their GP and the GP will fill out a whole lot of paperwork. And part of that is is trying to make an assessment as to whether the mental health condition was related to work. Um, and as we all know, your mental health is often not confined to one aspect of your life. Often it's a you know, personal problems and work problems clash. Sometimes they cause each other. <laughs> it's a little bit complicated. So it's really hard for to make a call about how much of the depression or anxiety or uh, whatever the psychological health problem is um, was related to a circumstance at work. So if it's PTSD, that's a little bit easier to make that association. So, for instance, if you're a train driver and you run over someone on the tracks, that could cause PTSD. We can all see the cause and effect there. But for instance, say you just went through a divorce, but at the same time your boss was mercilessly bullying you for years um, and then your best friend died and you, you feel a bit depressed or you feel so depressed that you need to go and get some workers' compensation. Um, yeah, how much of that is, is related to your boss? It's kind of hard to tease out those factors. Yeah, it is. I can't even imagine how difficult it would be to take up one of those cases as a GP. I actually uh, was reading how a lot of GPs actively try and avoid workers' compensation claims for this very reason. Yeah, well, one of the main reasons I think they avoid it is it's it's time-consuming. It takes a lot of time to, to write all of these notes. Um, the other reason is that in different stages of the process, a uh, work workers' compensation patient might get assigned a claims officer. So there's someone appointed by the insurance company to make sure this person's getting really good treatment and that will help them get back to work. <laughs> so it costs the insurers less money. But sometimes these claim officers want to come to the GP appointments with the patient. Um, and sometimes they, one of the lawyers I was speaking to said they even start arguing with the GP about the GP's assessment of the patient and what they think the patient's capable of. So another part of this process is that the patient will see their GP, but then the insurance company will insist that they also see an independent medical examiner on top of that. Yeah, so that's one th reason why um, work cover, going through the work cover process can be so emotionally draining and damaging for a patient because you're being forced to relive trauma over and over again. So first you go to your GP and say, hey, fill out this work paperwork, I need workers' comp. And then the insurer will say, okay, we need you to go see this, this psychiatrist who isn't going to provide any treatment. They're just going to judge you <laughs> and try and see if you're really that sick and if your health problem is really that related to work. Um, I can't think of anything worse. I mean, it's bad enough being mentally unwell, but then having to 
essentially prove yourself in front of a, a specialist. I, it just seems contrary to everything we know about how to treat mental health issues. Um, for one thing, the delays in this process can be quite extreme. I actually went and asked all of the states and territories because this is what I do um, about what the delays were. And for psychological injury claims to be accepted in Western Australia, it takes 57 days. <laughs> so that's potentially 57 days without treatment. Um, and I did actually speak to a few GPs who said that during that time they offer care without the patient paying. Um, so it's a lot faster in New South Wales, uh, but Queensland also has delays of 41 days. Looking at that and hearing what you're saying, Felicity, it just makes you think that it's more work than a full-time job in some cases. Yeah, and also the rejection rate is quite high. So in Queensland, the rejection rate was 62% for psychological injury claims, whereas the rejection rate for physical injury claims was between 4 and 11%. It's reversed in some other states where the majority of claims are accepted, so that's good. But yeah, that's still not ideal. Yeah, so going back to that whole comparison between physical injury, psychological injury at work, I guess the question to ask is, does it matter whether it's caused by work or not, if that person is unfit to work, according to the GP? Yeah, so there are two separate issues. One is, do you need to figure out if work is related to the mental health problem in order to treat the patient? And the answer to that is absolutely, you need to figure that out. Because if you can't work out what is causing the problem, it's very hard to solve the problem. (laughs) But in terms of this other aspect of it, which is the managing the workers' compensation claim, um, it's important for the insurer to figure out liability. But often they... It's done in a little bit of a nonsensical way. So the major problem with workers' compensation is it takes the control over the treatment plan away from the patient and gives it to the insurer and it gives it to other bodies. Um, And that can really be quite harmful because patients are much more likely to recover if they feel like they are in charge of their treatment. So what are the tools available? Where can GPs go now if they want to find out more about this uh, for clinical practice? So there's the a new clinical guideline came out this year and it's been produced by Monash University and it's been signed off by all the major medical bodies. Um, and I read through the guidelines and they, they've got a lot of good resources in terms of um, diagnosis tools. So one of the best things that GPs can do according to the insurers and government bodies is to really specify what the diagnosis is rather than just saying work stress they say oh this patient has ptsd and it's this severe severe and they've also got drug and alcohol issues and yet really like put it on a scale so that's quite helpful um the problem with workers compensation from my perspective is that there's lots of stakeholders who are all engaging in this one process which delays the process it's confusing it's difficult in every 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 state is different and the patient is having to navigate this process and none of the people are talking to each other. So the insurers aren't necessarily talking to the GPs and they all distrust each other as well. The GPs don't trust the, the um, insurers, the insurers and the lawyers are opposing. Insurers are thinking the GPs are not doing a terribly good job. And it's all just because of communication breakdown and no one's really like stepped back and looked at the process and how to make it easier for the patient. And also what's in the patient's best interest. And so I don't think the guidelines really got there. Also, the insurers funded the guidelines. The guidelines were not influenced by the insurers. But I think that it's a little bit not engaging with the real problem, particularly if this work cover process is making people have mental health problems in itself. (laughs) That that is an indication for not using it, um, I, I would think. Yeah, so if workers' compensation isn't an option for most people and it is damaging people's mental health further, 
then what are the other options? So I actually discovered this little gold nugget in my research, which was that Job Access, which is the National Body for Disability Employment, actually has a little bit of funding put aside for helping people who have mental health problems in the workplace. Um, And so they have $1,500 per year that can go out to an employee um, with significant mental health conditions um, to help them access a psychologist for one-on-one specialist support at work. Um, and job access were a little bit cagey about describing what this money was for. So I think it's on a case by case basis. And they couldn't tell me how many people had accessed it in the past year, but they did tell me that at least one person has. <laughs> but it seems like that could be, you know, an easy way to cover some psychology appointments if you were, you know, for instance, being bullied at work or, you know, had depression at work and you just needed a little bit of support. Maybe that would be a good thing to try. How hard is that one to access? I think it's a lot easier. The idea is that they're trying to support people with disabilities to get into work. So it's a slightly different focus, but I feel like you could probably use that in a different context. Thanks, Felicity, for that great recap on the perils and tribulations of workers' compensation in the clinic. But before we move on, let's check in and see what our quirky historical fact is for today. It's the 10th of October, 1726. An English newspaper, the British Gazetteer, reports. From Guildford comes a strange but well-attended piece of news that a poor woman who lives at Goldalmond was, about a month past, delivered by Mr John Howard, an eminent surgeon and a man midwife living in Guildford, of a creature resembling a rabbit. This woman in the paper, Mary Toft, continued to suffer monstrous births in the months following, mostly of small animal parts. Before long, her case became a national sensation. It drew the attention of increasingly eminent physicians, including the surgeon to the royal household of King George I, who deemed the case to be genuine. During medical examinations, her panting and motions were convincing to several doctors, and her own account that she couldn't avoid thinking about rabbits accorded with theories that maternal imagination could affect fetal development. By December, however, the story fell apart. It was uncovered that the rabbits were being bought, not birthed, and Mary herself confessed when the doctors threatened her with some sort of unknown but painful medical operation. We're almost at the end of this week's episode, but before we go, we'd like to bring you some of the feedback we've had from our listeners. It seems like we've got people thinking about things and really engaging with the kinds of stories that we're bringing. So this is some listener feedback. It's from the Pain Australia CEO, Carol Bennett. She says that uh, this podcast featuring Professor Laura Mosley, so that was our Education is Medicine episode, highlights how thinking about pain can change the course of our experience. While it may seem that pain is a simple physical stimulus, the way that we understand our pain is the key to managing it. This is pain science translated into reality. Everyone should hear this. It has the potential to shift our mindset and potentially our experience of pain. So if you have any feedback, we'd love you to write to us on social media or just send us an email. So you can email me at francine at medicalrepublic.com.au or felicity at medicalrepublic.com.au. And next episode, we're going to be exploring the topic of cultural safety. What does a culturally respectful GP clinic actually look like? And we're going to be joined by Penny, our political reporter here, who's going to give us a rundown of the federal election. And she's going to settle the score between who's winning the GP's love, attention, and most importantly, their votes. See you next time. 